Welcome one, welcome all, and welcome back to the 13th episode of the Transform Your Game podcast. My name is Richard, and I'll be your guide, host, and moderator here today. Uh, rest assured, it isn't just me, though, as I'm graced by the presence, wisdom, and perspective of my three co-hosts, uh, as long as the topic is competitive Transformers TCG. Uh, Kent? Go home and be a family man. Kai? Inuyasha! And Joel? Hey there. Uh, we'd like to first thank the listeners out there joining us. Uh, wherever you found this episode, the last few weeks we've been conducting roundtable discussions regarding some of the cards and characters we expect to have a measurable impact in the upcoming competitive metagame, once Wave 5 releases, that is. Uh, last week, if you haven't gotten a chance to listen yet, we had the privilege of interviewing Stefan Pinkney, uh, a titan in the competitive community if you're going by finishes, wins, and play quality. He's also got a YouTube channel over at DefTF. Um, you might even be listening already on YouTube as one of our listeners, so you can just go over and, and check him out as well if you're interested. Um, the format today for us is going to be a bit different than either that or our spoiler discussions, though. Uh, one of the goals of both our cast and the accompanying website, TransformYourGame.net, is to encourage our fellow community members to seek to improve their game as we do. Uh, in light of that goal, we wanted to bring an important topic to the table as a kind of like video take or video essay take of what a strategy-minded article might normally discuss. Uh, the topic you ask? Managing information in-game. Uh, what types of things to focus on, how it can help, how often and when to do it, these axes, and more. Uh, we'd be remiss to ignore our obligatory housekeeping stuff at the beginning, however, so let's hit three these bullet points uh, really quickly. Firstly, uh, a little bit of advertising, actually. Vector Sigma's webcam wave 5 tourney is currently underway. I believe they're doing the top cut matches as of this recording, that time. Uh, actually, tonight, uh, if you count the day we recorded this. Uh, I mistakenly claimed I would be competing in this tournament a couple episodes ago, uh, but sadly that was due to a miscommunication. Uh, we here at Transformer Game uh, are wishing the tournament luck and success all the same. Hopefully this tournament is an example of safe tournament conduction that might be emulated or drawn from as inspiration down the road. Uh, we're also in the month of May, finally, after much ado, the May 29th release of Titan Masters Attack for the Transformers TCG inches ever closer. I'm so excited. I love proxy cards as much as the next guy, but it just isn't the same feeling, you know? With this date on its way, comes the reminder to buy your product at your local game store, if at all possible. It's thoroughly important to support the places you play now more than ever, scratch their back so they keep having the ability to scratch yours. Um, oof, third bullet already. We're blazing through this. Uh, Origins Online is coming up in June. Uh, still no word from Watsi about potential online play in some form or fashion for this. We also haven't heard about plans for the rescheduled date in October, but we're still a ways out from that second bit. Um, on, the na on the note of conventions, I actually uh, went to the Gen Con website today to see if there were any updates. Uh, they are monitoring right now, but at this moment, they're actually still planning on holding the event uh, in late July, early August. Uh, but for the meantime, both the release of the event catalog and the opening event registration are delayed while they figure those kind of things out. Uh, I do believe that covers our housekeeping slash news segment for the week, which means it is time for us to dig into our real topic, our real focus for the episode. Okay, uh, well, like I mentioned at the beginning of the cast, the topic this week focuses on managing information in ways that let you actively make better decisions, turn to turn in a game of Transformers. We have a bunch of talking points centered underneath this larger umbrella topic, uh, and I thought that we would start at, you know, kind of the place that the game normally starts, which is what your opponent's lineup uh, looks like. So what the characters, keywords, stratagems kind of look like. Uh, Joel, you want to take us into that? Sure. So you could look at your opponent's lineup 
and determine for the most part what kind of deck they were playing or specific cards that were probably in their deck like if your opponent's deck had Scrapnel in it, or I'm sorry, if your opponent's lineup had Scrapnel and three other Insecticons, well your opponent is probably playing all orange. That that should be fairly obvious to the to most uh, to most competitive players. If your opponent's lineup <laughs> had Flame War in the in the main lineup, then you would assume that your opponent is playing mostly a blue slanted uh, a blue slanted deck with specific cards like security checkpoint or marksmanship or cards like that so you had an idea what was what to expect before you even started to play them yeah i mean one of the things that i guess uh i'll go into because he's my favorite was like captain jetfire for example so um a lot of my opponents when they sat down across from jetfire were like they were at first going uh i guess like in an android invitational time they didn't really know what to expect he wasn't quite as like uh expanded upon as an idea in the deck building community but as like the metagame really progressed onward and he became more familiar as a fixture uh my opponents would sit down and they would kind of like immediately start to contemplate the matchup i know when i was playtesting from the other side of things uh in regard to things like that was that i was anticipating that my opponent would be heavy blue be defending for a lot so i'd have to try and basically like plan my turns out where i'd be focused damage turn to turn right so I'd have to play I'd have to plan turns uh, or try to use my resources in a way where I was maximizing when they were getting you where they were getting uh, utilized so I would run I would run basically like uh, if I was blue myself maybe a turn comes where I'm playing both an energon axe and uh, the bigger they are in the same character and I know that I'm gonna have to try and set up for something like that over the course of the game I'm gonna have to try to find my windows in order for the cards that I have to be the best that they can possibly be um, and I think there's a lot of carryover uh, from Galaxy Prime, but uh, I played less of him, so I'll let maybe look one of the other guys uh, who you know have more experience or more expertise there, like talk more about it. Um, but I do know that like you know basically when you when you look across the other side of the board and you see uh, someone who's going to play blue and has a lot of card advantage, that it's very likely they're going to try to develop a, a long game tough plan, something like assembling triple extra padding, right? Assembling uh, or having lots of copies of sabotage armaments or playing ranged damage cards. That kind of thing yeah this game is a lot like um other very competitive tcgs in the fact that uh, okay let's just compare it to magic real quick you sit down from your opponent you shuffle up they go first and they drop a mountain what are they playing um they're probably playing a sly slash red deck wins kind of deck um, you're going to expect, you know, lightning bolt incinerate and a bunch of little wieners out there uh, <laughs> trying to pound you down while they burn your guys out of the way and then eventually go to the dome when you get low on life. This game, you don't even have to wait. <laughs> you just see their lineup. And one thing that I do is I will look at their lineup and, you know, because we test pretty thoroughly in this group and we know the matchups, I start running through my head what are the key not just what the key cards in their deck are going to be but what are the key plays that i need to make happen to ensure that i play this match correctly um, and that goes all the way into sideboard as well uh, it's important i think to not just go on autopilot of Oh, they're just they're playing blue. All right, well, I gotta make sure and you know smash their Galaxy Optimus really hard. Okay, well, like break it down and think about what specifically 
you need to do in every possible situation. And hopefully you've play tested the matchup enough that you know uh, exactly, you know, what trail you're gonna go down to get that win. And we're about to get into wave five, but those are just my general thoughts with the old metas. Yeah, I don't really have too much else to add on that for the wave four examples. It's like, wave four, as we know, is pretty defined as is. So if a lot of people are going to take the wave four shells and move it to wave five, I know I've been doing that personally with the deck profiles that I'm going to be putting up. But um, that's just one of the easiest ways to do. Just study wave four and just... That's, that's pretty much where we came from, so not much is going to change immediately unless you just have that one guy who's just going to play a bunch of Titan Masters and then you, you, you might have to think on your toes a bit, but uh, for the most part, yeah, just starting from Wave 4 is pretty solid for it, uh, expanding into this new format. Yeah, and I actually think that's one of the reasons why like we started off with these examples, right? Um, they're more concretely defined, and I guess like at least a lot of people haven't been playtesting with proxies or anything like that because it's just so much more satisfying to have the actual cards in their hand. So a lot of people's points of familiarity are from playing, you know, predominant and popular archetypes from Wii 4. Things like, uh, you know, Airstrike Patrol, for example, right? Like, you see Raider Tailwind across the other side of the board, you know none of your armors are going to live because Bashing Shield is both a green and an orange, and it's just like an objectively powerful card. So there's three of those cards in your opponent's deck, right? So you you know that like that's not a part of your game plan. You're gonna be able to, you're gonna be trying to focus on. Uh, so you can you can use your green pips instead of to pick up things like maybe reflex circuits or sparring gear. You can use them to get like weapons. No scoundrels blaster, nobles blaster. So you can focus on the on the axes that are maybe. Um, I don't know that your opponent's less uh, good at combating in that way. Uh, at least that's one of the ways like I try, I've tried to like tailor my gameplay just from like seeing people's uh, you know their their first cards that come out. And you know, speaking of that, um, I think now that we've gotten kind of like a basis from Wave Four, I think maybe we can talk a little bit more about some of our experiences when it comes to the Wave Five characters. A little bit more unfamiliar territory, Kent. Yeah, for me, obviously, the three most important characters in this wave, in this new metagame going forward, are Sky Shadow, Perceptor, and Horrible. Not necessarily in that order um, either, but uh, the joke with our group these days is every time you sit down in front of a, of a, of a player to play, you're going to play against either Perceptor, Sky Shadow, or Horrible, or a combination of those three. And those do have like very specific tells early on too. You know, if you see Horrible, you can expect a lot of black, like, okay, cool. They're going to be playing Camion Crash. They're going to be playing Fusion Borer. They're probably, if, if they're smart, going to be playing Enhanced Power Cell because uh, that's a really hard one to get rid of and it boosts up uh, their life. So um, there's just different tells with that. With uh, Perceptor and Sky Shadow, there's, there's a lot of different ways that could go. Um, that could go mainly straight orange or mostly blue or a good mix. Um, you know, we've seen Stefan play a mixed version of that deck and all of these are going to continue to develop and continue to, you know, just refine themselves over and over until we get the best list. I don't think that there's a best list for any deck out there right now. Um, just in the games that we've played as a group and against other people from 
other teams and stuff like that. But again, it's all about looking at the lineup and figuring out exactly what your opponent's game plan is and how you're going to defeat it before you even play the first card, before you even draw your first card. You need to know what their plan is and what your plan is to to beat that. I think most of the set is largely like slanted orange, so I I think it's much easier to presume that you're you're probably going to be playing against an orange deck. Like their Fangri is going to largely persist being orange. Uh, horrible. There's more better orange black cards than our blue blacks, and uh, probably the only two that I would say would mainly be um, blue would be like Night Racer and Pounce. So. Mm-hmm. Because like even Perceptor, Perceptor and Sky Shadow, they can be a mix-up. It could be one side, one the other side, or a mix, as Kent was saying. But I think most of, most everyone's leaning towards orange from what I've been seeing. So I think it would be a safe bet to just assume orange to some degree, for sure. Other than the two that I mentioned earlier, and way four examples. Yeah, another thing. Another thing to think about um, if your opponent is playing uh, Night Racer. And and pounce, you can be assured that their deck is based around secret actions. And the the one thing that we've completely left out is if your opponent's uh, if your opponent's lineup is including Autobot World, you know that they're not really interested in winning. <laughs> wow, savage. So if you see if you sit down across from Autobot World, you know you can shake their hands say thank you very much i it was a pleasure because <laughs> it's a buy is that what you're trying to say correct <laughs> oh man um right, right i mean one of, the, one of the things i think is important to note is uh so so it's still very early right like we're still pre-release technically like i know that there's a lot of people who've been playing online been proxying playing with their friends or teammates um so there are a number of cards that have stratagems attached to them, allowing you to play additional star cards, right? So maybe there are decks that we haven't explored yet quite, that, that make better use of those cards. But I'll tell you this, one of the things to consider when you see something like that, I think the most notable of which is probably Stealth Mission to go along with Night Racer, uh, is that it's going to inform you about what kind of powerhouses your opponent might have, right? So Stealth Mission, I'll throw this one out to Kai here, uh, basically just like as a shout out, not because I have, I have points I'm trying to make here, Kai. You don't get all the airtime. But um, he released a, a deck profile recently of uh, a major shockwave deck that was making use of both Night Racer and Flame War for massive defensive buffs for his larger character as a centerpiece, and he was playing Stealth Mission. Now, um, I think like the most obvious star card secret action that comes to mind would be something like Heroic Resolve. It's a double blue pip. Um, it's incredible with Autobots. You can make it sit out there forever and get more value out of it through something like Spymaster's Ruse in the first place, especially with a five, you know. Um, but you might notice that there's no Autobots on that lineup with Flame War, Night Racer, and uh, 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 Ranger Shockwave. Shockwave. Pardon me, thank you. Um, so. Uh, what Kai did was he made use of a different secret action, a different powerful star card secret action, Lucky Dodge, right? I know that we we flamed and memed all about uh, Lucky Dodge when it got uh, spoiled, but uh, it turns out that the card is actually not not bad when you can just have it sit out forever with a Spymaster's Ruse um, and if Heroic Resolve isn't an active buff in your deck, you know? So I think that's like one of the one of the good points of like um, 
when you see somebody with stealth mission but they have no autobots, that means heroics resolve is not a guarantee. Like you have to be considerate of more like a different other types of cards. Uh, maybe that you'll see something like heroic or villainous spotlight. I think those are two of some of the other really impactful stratagems that affect like deck construction, right? Um, they can do things like if you see Ultra Magnus and uh, Heroic Spotlight, they're basically getting to use his ability to have Ultra Magnus armor for free, uh, you know, for one fewer stars. So it changes like what the different lineup that he could be. Like that's very likely something to go on. If you're seeing somebody with Autobots in Stealth Mission, they likely have Heroic Resolve. Maybe they're trying to pair it with, uh, I don't know, some big centerpiece character. Maybe it's like a, a General Optimus Prime or a Perceptor or something like that, right? I think these are important things to note, and I think things like we, you know, uh, Joel, you put up that article about like the deck with all the double oranges you could possibly fit in it, right? A while ago, uh, with Villainous Spotlight, which is informing you from the start that that's very likely going to be a piece in it, right? That you're going to play Mana Missiles, you're going to play uh, what's the Decepticon Secret Action? Even the score? Yes. Yeah, even the score as well, right? Like so, those types of things are available. Um, I think these are really important things to consider, and I actually think they're important facets of the game going forward. Uh, you should at least have like an, you know, have on like a short list some of the powerful star cards. Maybe not all of them, but just some of them. You know what I mean? In addition to, you know, kind of like, not guessing, but using information to kind of calculate what types of cards you should be in play patterns, you should be aware of out of your opponent's deck from their lineup. I think it's really important to keep track of what kind of cards they have in their hand from a variety of things as they've just gathered them over the game, as the information has become revealed. There's tons of cards that help do that, you know, kind of help set this up. Like uh, maybe they reveal their hand, right? I mean, uh, Kai, I know that like you've been eating people, you ate people's hands a lot with Shockwave. You play many discard effects in addition to that? Um, not specifically, but um, mainly it's it's just counter espionage that I've been playing it with, but even still, just like that in security checkpoint, but even still just knowing. So like before I use this card effects, usually unless it's like Shockwave where it's there's no cost to it because they get to choose. But um, with if things like espionage or counter espionage, I generally um, look at their scrap pile first just to see like, um, hey, I, they have three. Uh, they have three sabotage armaments in their scrap pile, so their face down secret action isn't likely or can't be uh, sabotage armaments. So you can just do stuff like that. But also just like pay attention to what they're flipping too, because sometimes if they aren't picking up like some of their greens or just uh, they're a lot of they're flipping a lot of like their bigger dares or something like that, then you know you don't have to worry about that card in terms of things with like espionage or whatnot. That's true. Um, yeah, if, if they're not picking up uh, a bashing shield, they probably already have bashing shield in their hand. Or if they mm -hmm. if they if they're continually playing one type of card, if if their hand's full, you know, three four cards, and they're playing an action, and then that's it. And the next one they're playing an action. You can feel pretty confident that things like your armor are going to be safe because they probably don't have a bashing shield, or uh, they're just not playing. Uh, they're not playing any upgrades, so their hand is probably just choked with nothing but actions. So even if you don't have any way to look at their hand, um, that might not have been the very best example because they're probably not going to play their bashing shield anyway, <laughs> uh, just just because. Uh, but you you let me put it a different way. Maybe you don't need to worry about playing something like your force field or playing your triple uh, extra padding because. They probably yeah. don't have a grenade launcher in their hand, or they would have played it already. Uh, they're they're 
yeah, I mean, they're they're, they're going to have to draw it if they're going to if they're going to have one because if they're just going like action, 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 their hands choked choked down with nothing but actions, and they're getting kind of unlucky and not having any upgrades to play. So even without being able to look at their hand, you can kind of determine what's in there uh, a lot of the time from just just from that. Yeah, actually, I think it's really interesting you mentioned that because one of the major points I was going to talk about in regards to this is uh, when to time security checkpoints. Hard to hard to really pinpoint times to do security checkpoints is even if it's going to do things like take two cards out of your hand, maybe you have four cards in hand and two of them are upgrades that you can't really play this turn. Uh, maybe your security checkpoint is going to guarantee eat two cards from your hand with its own effect and like the actual you know, the action phase of playing the security checkpoint. But if your opponent's not making use of their of the action part of their turn, it's very likely that their hand is choked, I like the verbiage you use there too, um, with upgrades, which means that your checkpoint might be trading either even or plus in regards to the amount of upgrades it's gonna eat from your opponent as opposed to the amount that it's going to eat from you, right? So I also think that it's a great way to answer something if they're, if they're sandbagging a card. Maybe they're holding back something like Sturdy Javelin. Maybe they're holding back something like uh, Hollow Matter Projector or Bashing Shield. Maybe they're trying to keep something that's a very high impact upgrade in their hand to get the most value out of it at a certain particular part in the game. And if that's the case that you're doing, I think Security Checkpoint is one of the best cards to try and punish those lines of play. In addition to the fact that so one of the things that people don't often remember is that even though Security Checkpoint only scraps the upgrades from people's hands, it reveals their whole hand. So during that time, that's a great window for you to do something like pull out a, maybe, maybe you, uh, I think one of the things I, I normally do is I bring uh, a pen and paper to my matches, right? So when my opponent like reveals their hand to me through either espionage or secure checkpoint or something like that, I can write down what cards they have in their hand and then play and, ex and, and kind of calculate my turns with that information directly in mind. And I know that some people will say, like, writing it down, that feels like it takes so much time, blah, blah, blah. But um, I think no one's perfect. My memory is not, you know, everything in the it's, – it's not the, the best in the whole world. So I, I think that, like, I'm going to forget things from time to time even if my opponents revealed them to me. So writing them down means that I get to basically, like, keep track of that information and without having to clog up my mind or decision-making stuff. So um, I think it's even it's especially important when we talk about counter-espionage, right? Because counter-espionage is you name a card, and if it's in their hand, you scrap it. If it's face down, you scrap it. So if you're keeping track of what type of actions your opponent's picking up, whether through green pips or whether through uh, other various means, then it's going to be a way for you to guarantee hit, right? And if you don't have a guaranteed hit, counter-espionage is one of those cards where uh, you can use the information of what they've played or flipped over the course of the game to enhance your odds of, of actually like of making sure that you get value out of the card, in addition to just the information that it, that it gains you in the first place, or in the fact that it can play uh, effectively against secret actions that are face down. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that we've been talking a lot about as a team, uh, especially in the past few weeks, is what is in your opening hand and what kind of cards do you want to see in your opening hand based on the matchup? And I think that that's starting to shape the way that we um, structure and build our own decks also as far as like, hey, maybe we need to cut this uh, down to two copies of, of X card, whatever, um, or one copy of Y card. Um, just because starting hands can be so important. And then like watching, uh, one thing, an exercise we did 
just last night was we watched a replay of one of our games and we cracked open um, some drinks and we just had some fun <laughs> and we watched it and we analyzed it. And one thing that was clear by doing that exercise is like, okay, in mid game, like we really wanted you to see this card get into your hand and it didn't happen. Or by late game, you need to have this kind of setup for the kind of situation that we're in strategically with the other player. Um, that's really important. One thing also to note, I think that we as a team have actually found one of the downsides of playing Perceptor or your opponent playing Perceptor is then the other player knows exactly what, what cards you picked up, what cards are now no longer in your deck. You know, hey, that checkpoint's not in there. Hey, maybe I can be a little bit more reckless with some of my swings if I'm an orange deck because one of those double blues is already gone. Or, hey, they're hidden fortification. I made them choose and they had to put it underneath Perceptor. Or I know that they're holding hidden fortification, so now I can counter espionage and make sure that it's not a problem. Those are all like things to really consider. Like one of the reasons why I'm such a big fan of espionage and counter espionage is it just gives you so much information. Um, like once you espionage your opponent, like you know exactly what's in their hand and you can play around that. And in this situation, it would be best if he played this and this, this upgrade and this action. Mm -hmm. And you can really make an educated decision about how you're going to counter that. Um, and espionage, like, I, I want to make this little side note about that. I feel like espionage is more for defensive decks. Espionage orange, okay? I'm taking your belligerent, your grenade launcher, your power punch, your supercharge, whatever it is. Okay, counter espionage, I think is more for um, aggressive decks, uh, orange or black decks or a combination thereof, because then you're like, okay, I'm gonna hit your hidden fortification, your sabotage armaments, your stable cover, your in hostilities. Like, I think that those two cards kind of uh, lean in a certain direction uh, for deck building, uh, but that's just my own personal thought about them. Fun fact, I actually think that's one of the reasons why they end up making it into so many of my decks in this wave so far, is because I've been building a lot of like mid-range decks, you know, decks that like have some form of, have some amount of like real pressure they're applying, and uh, decks that are also are typically trying to play for like the mid-game as opposed to trying to end the game really quickly. So I've had I've had a lot of decks that end up with at least one copy of espionage and counter espionage because they're trying to play strong cards with low opportunity cost and be able to play like the best card at every particular phase of the game. Uh, so I have a question for you guys real quick while we're on this topic of discard effects, more <clears throat> um, I guess of hand scrap, hand attack, whatever you want to call them. Um, what have you been thinking of Chrome Dome? Because I know I've been like seeing him in, in pop up in some of our sideboards more recently. I really like Chrome Dome. I think he's a really cool character um, lore-wise, but I got into that in another podcast, so I won't repeat. Um, but he's one of my uh, favorite characters. I even had him as a toy, but I love his ability of just like, boom, turn one, let's see that hand. Cool, that belligerent, gone. You know, or against a defensive deck, that 
Heidi Fort or bigger they are, gone. Um, that Camion crash, gone. Mm. And it's not just put in their scrap, it is KO'd. They cannot get that card back. So, you know, e even if you're playing him in an orange deck and you're like, hey, cool, let's get rid of that security checkpoint. Cool, well, that's one double blue, gone forever. And then like now when they flip their Perceptor or whatnot, now they've got to start making some real decisions about, well, do I want to keep the, the double blues, keep cycling them through my deck, or do I want to hide them under Perceptor so he gets bigger? Because then your defense starts going down, and over time, those double blues getting removed from your deck, that hurts a lot. You know, and the opposite can be said um, if you're playing Chrome Dome in a blue shell, and like, Hey, what's the best card to take right now? Probably Peace Through Tyranny against an orange deck. Um, even like some of the Sky Shadow decks that are that are blue are running Peace Through Tyranny uh, because it's that powerful with that card. Or, oh, that Belligerent is really going to wreck me. Cool, let's get rid of that. It's gone forever. Um, I do wish that Chrome Dome got like, you know, the, the attack bonus, like, plus one attack for every action that's been KO'd um, throughout the game. Uh, like, hey, if you've got one, it gets plus one. You got two, it gets plus two. Because um, sometimes it is a little difficult, unless you're playing showing off or something, to get those three cards, three action cards gone um, and KO'd from the game. Yeah, I think that's just mainly his main thing, though, to KO actions, because... When, when we first initially uh, analyzed the card, we we said that we were never really going to get to the plus three attack. And realistically, I don't think you should ever plan to do that because it's, it's just unrealistic because you're hitting actions out of their hand and KOing it. So the chances of them just drawing more drawing more actions is just less and less as the game goes on. But also is also just um, it, it, you're just getting rid of the card forever. So that's that's basically all you really want to play the card for. So I think you you just if you get that out of your head, then I think it's fine. Yeah, it definitely wouldn't need that ability added to it. I mean, if it, if it had that ability added to it, it would be a much more powerful, a much more powerful body. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But but at, which would be great, you know, because there there's a. Uh, there's uh, several of the bodies that really just aren't super playable. I yeah. mean, they're more playable than World, but but some of the super, some of the bodies just aren't super playable. Well, hey, man. That's too old, right? World doesn't even have a body. <laughs> yeah, actually, no, he has a body. He has no hands. Well, I mean, he did have a body mode. That was that was a joke. And he only has one eye. That's true. It's kind of like a visor, though. It's not really one eye. You know what I mean? It's That's one, not the point. It's one, it's one eye. It's one, one eye. One of the, one of the things that one of the things I was uh, actually uh, I thought was interesting that you mentioned there, Joel, is um, that you, him being a more powerful body mode that would actually be kind of nice. So I agree in that I just kind of think like the power in the bodies uh, that they've printed in this wave is it's not a very flat uh, curve, right? I think like there are some really really powerful ones and some pretty unplayable ones. And I think there's very few that kind of exist in the middle. I actually think the Chrome Dome is one of the ones that does exist in the middle. I wouldn't be shocked if he did see some play, whether in the starting lineup or in people's sideboards. Um, I know I've been playing it more in my sideboard than I have been in, in any main decks, but 
I do wish that there were a couple more bodies that were just kind of like powered where they were like in the middle. Like they saw some play, but they weren't horribly dominant in the metagame. And I can't help but wonder if like if there were more of those cards like that, you know, a lot of those, uh, uh, what do you call them? A lot of those body modes have a lot of like discard effects or kind of like some interaction built into their character flip mode, like they're flipping. Um, maybe they would help uh, kind of police some of the, some of the, not problematic, but more powerful strategies that exist in the game as it stands right now. One of the, you know, it's funny we talked we talked so much about like espionage and counter espionage um, in in that first kind of like segment as far as like cards in people's hand. I think it's actually a great segue for, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, for the next thing we wanted to talk about, which is like those are those are cards of green pips, right? Like you normally see people pick those up uh, for when they're like opportune or they're powerful, um, and actually it's one of the things that like gives you particular information about cards in people's hand, right? Like. We'll see them pick up that and plenty of other other green pip cards. Well, yeah, part of the funny thing about the green pip cards, you're saying that there, there's powerful cards and you and knowing what's in their hand. The green pip is probably the most powerful pip, just because it allows you to uh, to craft your hand the way that you the way that you would like, and it and it it works with a lot of really good cards like like. Scoundrel or Noble's Blaster, Bashing Shield. I, I love that Bashing Shield. It's great. Ooh, <laughs> Bashing Shield. <laughs> Reprocess, like I said, like that, that just sort of ate, ate me ate me for breakfast at, at EI. Polymatter uh, Projector. Right, True. yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, um, you, you get a lot of information uh, about your opponent's hand because they're because they're playing green pips and you get to see you get to see them picking these cards up so then you can start to make a plan around those cards like oh they picked up a bashing shield do i really want to play this force field although part of the way that i like to play uh with people in their green pips is is i'm like okay well you pick up the bashing shield well you're going to use that instead of a grenade launcher here's my force field you you can still use it as like uh, yeah, they blew up your force field, so they're going to get to deal a lot of damage. But you're but you're forcing them to use a bashing shield instead of getting to pile on damage with things like the grenade launcher. A lot of thing, one thing that people do wrong, or at least in my opinion, do wrong in a situation like that is they're like, oh, my opponent has bashing shield, so what's the point in playing my force field? They're they're just going to bashing shield it, and then you know they're going they're going to get around it. I mean, I guess in, there, there's definitely scenarios where that's that's the case, but I, I just I just like to force my opponent to play it. Just you're, yeah. I you know make like I, I guess I just sort of try to make my opponent do what I want them to do. I mean, not that I want them to bashing shield my force field, for instance, <laughs> but but I'm like no, I, I'm like determining what their next play is going to be because if you don't if you don't bashing shield it, well then you know fine please play your grenade launcher I, I would love that right into my yeah. guy with force field so so it's it's that sort of scenario i you can navigate the game in that way like manipulate your opponent's play even though it seems like they have the advantage because they got to pick pick the card that they wanted from from the the flips you you still manipulated the situation to make them do uh make them do what you wanted them to do yeah, I actually think that's a really, really interesting point that you make there. So forcing, basically, like you're creating a forced script for your opponent. So one of the interesting, one of the interesting things about that particular strategy is because one of the things that green pips do, they typically increase deck diversity as far as like the number of unique cards among your deck, right? But they decrease variance over the course of a game because you're guaranteed to see green pip cards as as things trend towards infinite time. 
So what, what you're doing is when you're playing green pips in your deck is you're actually increasing the number of decisions, the density of decisions that you have over the course of a given game. Where what your the line of the line of play and the, the those like it that you're trying to talk about there, Joel, um, those are lines of play designed to reduce the number of relevant decisions that your opponent is making over the course of a given game. So you're actively combating the power level of the green pip. And I think that that is an incredible instinct. Um, it's something that I've tried to do as well. I think in particular I did a, like a ton of it in uh, wave three, right? Where uh, cars tip like tip like was very very powerful over the course of the the original meta game, right? And then as things turned to longer, uh, we saw shockwave and other variants like that come into play. But um, during like the cars on cars meta game, a lot of the time I would very happily play out my force field into my opponent's bashing shield because I would guarantee that they weren't going to play a weapon, right? And so I could structure my game plan around the idea that they were not going to be swinging for X amount of attack next turn. Um, and I thought that that was a really, really powerful way to use that line of play, create the force script. Um, one of the other things that I think green pips tell you when people pick them up, so uh, I know that I do this all the time, uh, when I pick up green pips, one of the things I'm typically trying to do is create a greater balance in my hand of the different types of cards I can play. So if I've got a hand choked on actions, I'm going to pick up that sturdy armor. I'm going to pick up that noble's blaster because it gives me the opportunity to use more pieces of my turn efficiently on any given turn, maybe the next one, maybe the one down the road, but it gives me greater odds and, and increases the number of decisions I have that are relevant over the course of a game, right? So if you're seeing your opponent pick up upgrade and then pick up another upgrade, like that'll inform you to the fact that their hand is choked on actions. They've got tons of them. So it, it, what it does is like basically maybe you have a counter espionage and you don't might not know what any of the actions of their hand are, but you know what they flipped, you know what's maybe in their scrap pile if you want to take a look there. You can typically guess at what types of things are going to be in their deck. And so if you know that they have a ton of actions in their hand, your odds of hitting with counter espionage are honestly going to be pretty good. Um, and maybe it'll pair you, maybe it'll set you up great for like a later part of the game. Or maybe you know that they have one upgrade in their hand because of the way that they're desperately clawing for anything they can pick up. And so you can espionage that one upgrade and thus turn off half of their next turn, which is a really, really powerful thing to do. Or maybe use security checkpoint to eat their only upgrade, you know, especially if you're choked on actions at the same point. Yeah, I, I love taking my opponent and like basically opening a book and telling them a story and you can do that with green pips and then they get in their mind like say i mean this is a this is a classic example with the jetfire deck and that is okay discard a handheld blaster on defense for a nobles blaster or an extra padding or whatever and then they're thinking to themselves okay cool well my hand's probably safe everything's fine and then you're like guess what security checkpoint you turn the page of the book and it's totally um a, a different outcome than maybe what they thought um i i really like green pips for that reason because you can diversify your deck kind of like uh what you were saying richard uh but also it it makes them think that you're going to do something and maybe you are <laughs> but the element of doing something else that is completely not what they expected. I mean, I've seen a lot of people, their eyes just kind of like light up all of a sudden and they're surprised. And I'm like, yeah, 
Yeah, you are. Good. <laughs> so um, I, I think it brings like the element of mind games a little bit more into this game than if there was no such thing as a green pip. So uh, green pips are one of the, we're talking about picking things up. I think uh, one of the other ways that people, re you know, like they, they reveal the cards that are in their hand to you are these kind of like reveal add effects. They're not specifically draw effects, right? They're not cards that say draw cards on them specifically, but they are cards that increase the, the number of cards in your hand as a raw number, right? Like they are card advantage. Um, I think the ones that come to mind that are most obvious are Treasure Hunt, which actually predates the green pip, uh, Captain Jetfire, and uh, Perceptor most recently and most notoriously, right? So these are cards that Typically, what they're picking up is they're picking up a specific kind of card. You're getting to see what types of cards your opponent's adding to your hand. And the majority of them, I think, are upgrade ads as far as like what they actually put into your hand, at least the ones that I mentioned. Um, I, I know that there's, there's other ones as well, like pounce ads, secret actions to your hand, I believe. But Kent, we, you know, we've mentioned some Perceptor, like Perceptor generally like a couple times through here. Um, what would you say are some of the things to really focus on when it comes to these reveal ads? That are like Perceptor, for example. Well, uh, again, with with Perceptor and any any character or any effect that lets you know what your opponent has in their hand, again, unless they're playing a mind game on you, you can play around. Book example that we've been experiencing um, is I've been running a Night Racer Pounds Perceptor deck, and Perceptor actually sometimes believe it or not is a liability because it's like well i saw you get the heroic resolve when i you know put them in two piles or whatnot and i saw you pick up the spy master's ruse and when you play the spy master's ruse of course it's going to be heroic resolve so then they're like counter espionage for heroic resolve and and a lot of times because in in the version that i'm running i have so many secret actions i'll actually bluff that and it will be something else, uh, like a hidden fortification in hostilities, sab, you know, the list goes on. But the first time that happened, it was just like, <sighs> yeah, I mean, I literally told them exactly what I was going to do. And so I think that you have to, you really have to think about the mind game a lot more when you play a character like Jetfire or Perceptor. Um, you know, especially when it's this reoccurring effect like those two characters have. Um, you, you again, you're, you're telling them everything almost, and you've got to be able to switch it up or you're going to walk into a trap. Well, I think one of the, one of the cool things about uh, cards like those that draw a whole bunch of cards, it, it, it really makes other cards relevant, like if you're playing a, a blue deck you're you're holding that security checkpoint you're, you're waiting for your opponent to to pick up tons and tons of cards like um say with perceptor you might just go zero cards in one pile and let them pick up all those upgrades and then you security checkpoint them out of their hand or as the aggro guy um a, a very unsung card from wave one uh, computer sabotage uh, it says your opponent chooses three cards from their hand and scraps the rest. I mean, that card uh, is an orange pip. It fights against your your opponent drawing bunches of cards. There's there, there's there's now starting to be lots of ways where you can 
just fill your hand and draw lots of cards and, and cards like that might just come out of the woodwork and actually be sort of playable. Interesting. I think one of the last points to mention here about the reveal ad cards is I wanted to uh, hit like one specific point about Perceptor. Now, we could talk about the ways to like list the, the ways to make piles forever, but I think one of those discussions that people may not be having that's kind of a discussion around that discussion is the fact that Perceptor actually gives you two places to keep track of cards. So Perceptor, in the way that he interacts with the underneath the character quote-unquote zone of the game, um, for lack of a better term, is uh, he reveals you four cards. So you know about those four cards, you know what zones they are in for at least the time being and for the cards that go underneath Perceptor for the duration of the fact that he actually lives throughout the game before he gets KO'd, right? So that's one of the things you can keep track of. I literally, like, um, I was playing a match the other day, and while I was going, I had a column drawn down the middle of my page, and I had a, card, a column that said Hand and a column that said Percy. And the, the cards that I knew that were in my opponent's hand were going on the left side, but the cards that I knew were under Percy were going on the right column, or the right half of the column, right? So you're right. So, like, what that means was I was able to inform my future decisions in regards of separating piles, in regards of what to pick up or how to play the game, how to try to structure the script of the game was going to play out because of the fact that I had the information of what was underneath Percy. Anyway, I just wanted to make that small blurb about Perceptor before we moved on. Now, uh, I know we've had a lot to say today, but this is a hefty and a deep topic with a lot of different angles to it. Enough so that I think we're going to continue the discussion in next week's episode for some of the other aspects and axes contained under the larger umbrella of managing information in-game. Uh, before we send people off, I say we get to some of these fantastic viewer questions we got this week. We maybe only have time for one today because well, I talked a lot and so did some other people here. Uh, but some great options to choose from. How do we feel about that, guys? Very cool. Yeah. All right. Uh, then, well, I say we answer the first question commented on the post, you know, uh, first come, first serve, which comes to us from Nick Wiedemann. Uh, Nick, I know you corrected my pronunciation when we spoke last. I hope I did you proud this time around. I don't want to mispronounce people's names if I can avoid it. Uh, but anyway, Nick asked two questions that are both related and at the same time of differing levels of seriousness. Um, so he asked us, Firstly, who's been the best character so far in your testing, and why is it Sky Shadow? Secondly, and more seriously, I think, in depth as a question, what do you think control decks need to do to keep up in what looks to be a heavy direct damage and pierce environment? So in regards to the first question, uh, yes. And uh, for, the second, <laughs> for the second one, uh, so control deck before, like black pips weren't exactly like that prevalent like we saw later in, at the format with uh, Orlando that black pep black pips were indeed a threat but at the time of like EI or something uh, it was pretty much still just orange and uh, blue so control decks at that point only really needed to worry about other control decks and orange decks and that was just much easier easier to do with things with uh, a more general uh, covering of secret actions such as sabotage armaments and hidden fortification, which are fantastic in both of those uh, matchups. So with the uh, Pierce now being incredibly prevalent and this heavy direct damage um, being added into the game thanks to Mr. Horrible himself, it's, it's just a lot of angles to, that um, control decks have to worry about now. Um, I mentioned this in the Shockwave deck profile, not to glorify that or anything but it's it's just like there's just way too many things that you have to do as a control player and you i think it's 
uh, control deck is probably better for later in the metagame when you do dis when you do see uh, a clear slant in some direction. Because right now it is just way too many things you have to juggle and whatnot. So that and Sky Shadow is also <laughs> because he is the best character. Uh, he is also the main reason that's holding control decks back because they not only do they have to get through either the plane or the tank, then they have to get through that big titan body, and then they have to get through that little head ominous that doing that can do four pierce four minimum. So it's like it's just so many things that you have to take into account in so many phases of that it's just it's a lot for a deck that doesn't often pump up their control their uh, damage numbers to an absurd amount consistently to deal with. I haven't done quite as much testing as as my uh, friends here. However, uh, I'll answer the first part of the question, who has been the best character so far in testing and why is it horrible? I am such a horrible <laughs> fan. Uh, I, I I hated him initially and probably just the name because it's <laughs> It's bad. But that's his but, name. That's actually the name. They didn't make it up like well, they did didn't make it up like uh, Hasbro made it up way back in the day. Right. And then, and it was a bad idea then too. But that's okay. The the card itself is uh, extremely powerful. It, it's it's really easy to, to to think that that's the most powerful card because well where, where's all this direct damage coming from that you're talking about also what kind of deck is horrible going to be in well one with a bunch of black pips so we're talking about a bunch of pierce there so it's so it really they the two go hand in hand so yes sky shadow super powerful horrible super powerful and i'm not really sure that there is anything that a control deck can do in that kind of environment like control decks might just kind of get hated out just a little bit for for a little while and and i'm not saying this as you know quote the aggro guy but that's kind of okay <laughs> because because control has really been the dominant archetype throughout the entire lifetime of this game i mean in wave one uh, you know bugs was good but but it really it really finished off with with decks centering around Optimus Prime and and a blue shell and and in wave two it it's you know stayed with Optimus Prime and a, a blue shell <laughs> and then in wave three it sort of ended up with Shockwave and a blue shell so and wave four what what kind of deck won one EI well it was Galaxy Prime and a blue shell and the aggro deck sort of being the dominant force at the moment isn't isn't really a big deal. I mean, if if it stayed, if if everything always came back to a control deck being the dominant force in the meta, it, the game would be kind of boring if it just always came back to that every single time. And I'm not sure that a control deck, at least not with the cards that we currently have through Wave 5, can keep up with all that Pierce and all that direct damage. I mean, even if your deck is completely centered on it, we were talking about that before we started the cast. Even if you're bringing in three of this and three of this and three of this and three of this, or you can't have that many cards, whatever. If you're bringing in 10 cyborg cards to try to combat your opponent, uh, it's probably still not enough because you're having to react to your opponent doing stuff and they, like their deck keeps gets to keep doing what they want to do and you're just trying to stop them from doing what they want to do and butchering your own your own deck by putting in 10 cards that you didn't want to have them in there in the first place. So uh, I don't think that, a long story short, 
I don't think that uh, Control can handle handle it, and I'm totally okay with that. Sky Shadow, horrible together are a serious, serious problem. Um, we knew this pretty early on, um, but it's it's kind of crazy. So we, but outside of Joel, we tend to play controlish type decks, and we have not been able to make a blue deck consistently beat it. And I, I've been running, you know, Pounce Knight, Racer, Perceptor, um, and a few other lineups too. And I'm so scared and petrified by that deck, either a black version that's tilted black um, or an orange black um, or uh, a blue black and, and mix with a little bit of orange too for Peace Through Tyranny because why, no, why not? That's so great in that deck. Um, and it's like, I'm so petrified of that lineup in any deck build and form it's like all right two hollow matters main deck for my blue control you know whatever it is and hey i in the the secret action one it's like i'm running three take cover main two stable cover main two hollow matter main uh lots of weapons to make my guys you know hit hard obviously all the you know wonderful secret actions in hostilities uh in fortification sabotage armaments uh because of night racer and pounce and spy masters ruse i'm like trying to play a secret action literally every turn uh the problem is even with all of that even with playing like two heroic resolve and like now i've got eight double blues in my deck it's still not enough so, yeah sometimes I can beat it um, maybe about 40% of the time, but that's not enough. It's just not enough, you know? And then you side in like, well, here's the other stable cover or here's the third hollow matter again. And you know what? It still might not be enough because you are on such the other end of, of the sword. They're always holding the handle and they always have the tip pointed at you. And right now, the Wave 5 metagame, at least the way that, that we see it, Blue cannot consistently win enough to make it truly viable to like win a big event. Um, I may eat my words on that, and I hope I do, because I'm a control player. That's what I love to play. I don't like drawing a card, playing it, and swinging, and that's it. I like to actually think and have to outwit my opponent, but like right now it's like, hey, I flip horrible to uh, body mode and now I'm gonna burn you to the ground. And if you kill Sky Shadow, there's more burn coming at you if you're an Autobot. And then just tons of Pierce, uh, you know, with fight for position, fusion board, camion crash, the list goes on and on. And, you know, hey, there's peace through tyranny and lots of orange in there, too. And, hey, I just threw an Energon axe on Sky Shadow. And now he's, like, you know, piercing for six before he even flips any cards, you know, and swinging for a base of 11. And it's just, like, you can't keep up with all of that. Like, honestly, I feel like we need in, in Wave 6 or in a future wave... 
another secret action that is more that that covers more options um or a bot that like kind of stops it a little bit like you know motormaster's great um but we really need something that's better than like acid storm or warpath that's like hey pierce is reduced down to one per character or you cannot take direct damage none of your characters can or they can they can't like if it's only one direct damage one point it's reduced to zero anything after that is reduced down to one something like that because horrible and and again i want to say man that really should have been megatron with a fusion cannon um that that card is so defining in sky shadow 2 that it almost feels like there's just there's not enough answers when you're trying to play those answers like when you're playing that hollow matter to project your your pounce or your perceptor then you're not playing a weapon or a pocket processor to draw cards or, or what whatever, you know. So they're still playing their stuff to mow you down and you're not doing anything to like hit them very hard um, outside of Pounce and a bunch of secret actions and Perceptor in the mid to late game finally getting big also. Just feels like it is a winnable match, but not consistently enough if it was 60 40 in um in our favor i'd be like yeah i'm gonna play this every time uh but since it's 60 40 the other way uh it's kind of hard to justify um so before i before i dive into like my own points i want to qualify um a two things some, some you know the responses of two of some of my uh, esteemed co-hosts on the podcast here so one i know that we've given uh, some trouble to Joel in the past for uh, him coming off as what seemed like a wet blanket. Um, and I think that you could take it that way if you didn't have a bunch of experience in this format as to his prediction that the quote you know, TLDR, the sky is falling for control decks uh, in this particular metagame. Um, and I think that the framing of Nick's question actually reflects that as well. But I don't think that Joel's being a wet blanket here. Um, and now I am a proponent of big blue decks. I'm a proponent of extra padding. I'm a proponent of massively defensive strategies of control that has been deemed prison-style strategies in other games, like Magic Gathering, right? Um, but I just don't think that the metagame at large is viable for it. You know, I would love for me for, to be able to say that as the metagame progresses and matures, comes to like a more known point, that it'd be easy to suit up you know, a control deck that is effective at combating what's got what we've got going on. But I think that one of like the larger adages, or I guess more storied adages in regards to games like this, is that aggro and control typically are posed as the question and the answer, right? Are you asking the question or are you providing the answer? And thus far in the history of the Transformers game, the control decks have been able to provide the answer. Maybe it's taken them time to figure it out. Maybe it's just really needed some like larger tuning. Maybe you need to play some actual mixed cards in order to get there. I'm not sure that the question can be answered this time around. Now, do we have other ways coming up? Maybe I'm wrong. I'm far from the best deck builder in the game, but I just want to say like, like there's, it's a, it's a big problem. It's, a, I think this is a very good question because of the fact that 
um, I do think that Control is facing a big problem here. I mean, I, I, I agree with Joel that I think it maybe is the death knell, but I'm going to try and answer the question in a positive way later. Secondly, like they, they're super powerful, and it seems like a lot of the powers of the body is kind of concentrated as opposed to split, spread across the set in a more flat way. Um, but I don't know that I would call them problematic per se. Now, um, as far as like actually addressing the questions, I think Sky Shadow is the best character that we've seen so far. I think that the fact that it's 15 stars, he's undercosted. You get you get a three star head for one star. You get strong characters that are not flip intensive to go along with the, go along with the lineup. You still get 10 stars available to you, which is a really efficient way to use what you're going on. It is a built-in untap. You have a character with eight attack and pierce four, which are some of the best raw stats we've ever seen. Right? Like, what character is better at attacking than that? Uh, at its base, like nothing. Not Octone isn't like Galaxy Prime isn't. We haven't seen it. On top of that, I think that Horrible is probably in contention. I think Horrible frames a lot of the metagame as it's going. Uh, I think that he just asks so little of you. And I don't think that like the, the in-game decisions are maybe as complex as some of the other decks provide in regards to like the Horrible decks. But what I do think they do is they just relocate the decision uh, intensiveness. So there's a lot of the important decisions, the relevant decisions you're making in regard to Horrible decks is typically like in the deck building part of the game. Like you're, you're deciding the important things, you're structuring things in an important way with real plans and lines of play before you ever get to the tournament. Once you get to the tournament, a lot of, not all, but a, you know, I would say like a small majority of the decisions you have are like basically you've already made them. So you kind of made your piece and we're going to let the thing run its course. Now, um, there's absolutely room to be, to outplay people as well. Like there's... There's tons. I've had some really interesting games with Horrible as well that have come down to some some cool plays, some cool interactions. Uh, that's that's neither here nor there. To answer the second part of your question, Nick, what do you think control decks need to keep up in what looks to be a heavy direct damage and pierce environment? I think I've mentioned before on previous episodes of this podcast that I don't know that true control has a place in this metagame, but I do think that mid range might. So what I mean by mid-range is something that I mentioned earlier in the podcast, which is something I've been really trying to take a stab at as far as building in this metagame goes. Where I've been trying to construct decks that have a reasonable pressure to them and a reasonable defensiveness to them, right? So I've been playing a lot of blue decks that don't have handheld blaster because I'm trying to play more real cards, combat pumps, weapons that are relevant, things like that, in order to, to basically like balance the parts of the phase, or I guess like the, the places that I'm trying to put the power of my deck into. Um, I also think that one of the things that you can do to try and combat is to explore with different methods of uh, defensiveness. So I think that one of the things that is not mentioned in this question that is really important is that the heavy, like lots of direct damage, lots of pierce, the advent of these things in Wave 5 is joining us at the same time that the printing of a card like Belligerence is. So Belligerence is functional pierce out of straight orange as well, if you look at it that way. Yeah. Because it, because you don't have to actually play black pips, and you still get the functional effect of it, although it is concentrated in like kind of a burst style effect in the form of, of belligerence, right? So I think that the question is actually not just can we answer Pierce, can we answer heavy direct damage? Because I think if those things were true, that can your Percy Pounce deck would be really, really, really well positioned. But it's the fact that you're answering those cards and belligerence. So it's a it's a third axis that you're trying to tackle. And that's just so many ways to be able to present attack 
that I think what you have to do is you basically just have to try to, to meter your opponent's damage output and then race, which is why I think mid-range is potentially strong in the Ping metagame. Now, I talked about other ways of doing defense than like are historically prevalent. I don't think that extra padding is playable in this format. I think you have to play raw defense buffs, the rock, paper, scissors armors. I think you have to do things like try and assemble Ghost Shield, because Ghost Shield is really effective in the face of maybe like decks that aren't running as many bashing shields. Hollow Matter Projector is a strong way to be de be defensive uh, against like the direct damage portion of things, right? Especially if it goes on your only Autobot on your team. I think you can play some secret actions that, that uh, show up this way. I think Spy Master's Ruse is one of the major defensive tools that has been given to us in the set. Um, Whereas there are a lot of aggressive tools, I think Spymaster's Ruse is explicitly on the other end of the spectrum. Um, not that it can't be used in a more aggressive shell. I think it's just made better use of in the opposite. I also think that people should be exploring the idea of Brave and Stealth more. I don't know if it's with the heads, Apex and Doomshot, I think is Megatron's head. I don't know if those are the car those are the cards that like where it needs to be placed, or if people need to start playing things like bravery, playing things like heroism, playing things like hiding spot or stealthiness or uh, point position or all those cards. But I think that those are things that people those are questions you have to be asking in the upcoming metagame. You have to expand the repertoire of things you're including in your definition of defensive shells and actions and game plans. Um, I know that I have talked on for a while now. I don't want to seem like I'm rambling, so I think we'll go ahead and call it, unless one of you guys has uh, any more important points that have come to your mind. I'm not sure that the best character is an Autobot World, but I haven't I haven't figured out which decks to put him in yet. All right, glad we got the third mention of World <laughs> on this episode. Um, and on that note, uh, I think we will go ahead and hit the conclusion of episode 13. Uh, thank you guys for joining us. Like I said, episode 13, we're happy to be here of the Transform Your Game podcast. Uh, we do sincerely appreciate all of you out there in the ether listening, whatever platform you're on. You can find our other episodes and more down the line on YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. We've got links in the description. Uh, be sure to join us on one of those platforms for the second half of this discussion next week. Um, and if you found the input and information here valuable, you can find more strategy, analysis, tournament reports, and more like it at transformyourgame.net. We look forward to being back to speak to all y'all next week, but until that time, clear eyes, flip bots, can't lose. <laughs>